Hey, folks, just a reminder that we are in the midst of our year-end fundraising campaign. And we'd love to invite you to look at becoming a partner with us in our work. So to give to our work at Theopolis and partner with us in biblical and theological renewal in the church, there's a link in the show notes, or you can head to theopolisinstitute.com and click on the Give tab. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Rhodes, and I'm the Content Manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church, Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we continue our series walking through the book of Jonah with James Jordan. And here, he's going to be looking at different biblical and theological motifs in the book of Jonah. As always, we do invite you to check out those links in the show notes. Specifically, we want to let you know about our upcoming intensive course in the month of March. That course will be taught by Peter Lightheart and will be on Pauline theology. For more information about that class, there's a link in the notes for you. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing motifs in the book of Jonah. What does the word Jonah mean? It means dove. Dove. Yeah. Yes, dove. Jonah. Dove. So we think about the flood uh, when we start thinking about this. And remember, we saw that God saves all the animals in the city as well. So we are supposed to be reminded of the flood. But today we're not going to think about that, except we already have. We're going to look at some of the motifs here. This takes place on the sea. It takes place with the storm. Uh, It takes place among the Gentiles. It takes place on a ship. So we want to think about those aspects of things as we come into the book because we're Israelites and we already know things about the land and the sea. We already know things about the storm. So as we start to read this book, we're already alert to things. So let's get ourselves alert. Verses 1 through 3 of Jonah chapter 1. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Right away, we're going to have to think about what this means, too. Great city. And cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. We we were mentioning the Tower of Babel today, right? And uh, stuff comes up before God, and he says, what's that? Gabriel, do you see anything down there? Uh... Then they go down. Well, Nineveh is one of the cities started up by Nimrod, who started the Tower of Babel as well. So the great city, wickedness has come up like an ascension offering, only the reverse kind. And God notices it. He's going to do something about it. So he tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and cry against it. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, And went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of Yahweh. Okay. What is the sea? He's going out on the sea. We remember back on the third day of creation. Way back in Genesis chapter 1. Way back here. On the third day, verse 9 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear And that was established. 
And God called the dry land to earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that this was good. It's good for the land to have its place and for the sea to be pushed back. Now, the sea doesn't really like being pushed back. It wants to come back and eat the land. And if you don't believe me, go out to the Gulf today and you will see the ocean trying to eat the land. It comes in, takes a bite, and then rolls back. And it comes in and it takes another bite. And if it could, it would cover the land again. Just roll up on the land and eat it all and take it all back again. Or something like that. But that's something that you can see. That there is actually kind of a contest between the land and the sea. The sea wants to eat the land. The land resists the sea. Now, that's just physical phenomena. We don't want to put any spirits in here. We don't have any naiads in the ocean, any zephyrs in the wind or anything like that. But it is something that you see. It's visible. And that visible thing is taken up in symbolism in the Bible. When the waters cover you, you're dead. Like at the flood. Everybody the water covered over was dead. At the Red Sea. As we walked through the Red Sea, according to Psalm 77, it says it's, it rained on us. You see, baptism is by sprinkling. If you weren't sprinkled, you weren't really baptized. Just kidding. But it's better to sprinkle. As we heard today, the Holy Spirit comes down from the waters above and brings this fire. And then we take the fire and we take it from person to person, lighting the heads of everybody out there, right? No. We take water. What comes down is fire, turns into water, and then is put on the heads of all the people in a river that's still flowing today uh, and has its origins back up in heaven. But when water covers you over... You're drowned, like Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. We were rained on by God's glory cloud in the Red Sea. So water's dangerous, okay? I know this for a fact. The whole time I was trying to grow up, people tried to teach me to swim in the water. I knew better. Water was out to get me, and no matter how I splashed and thrashed, it kept trying to drag me down. Finally, I graduated from college and didn't have to ever get in the water again. Well, in the Bible, I mean, if you can, if you can negotiate the water, good for you. It's terrifying to poor Jim. The sea in the Bible is the Gentile lands. And at the conquest, we pushed back the waters of the Canaanites when we came into the land. We went dry shod over the Jordan River. The water was dried up. And in a, in a symbolic sense, God pushed all these Gentiles and pagans out of the land. And we had it. And now that's the land. It was originally the land of promise. And then at the time of Moses, it turned, turned from being a land of promise into what? Uh-oh, another question. Oh, land flowing with milk and honey. Absolutely. It was pretty crummy, pathetic, third-rate land back in Abraham's day. It was one famine after another. And Abraham and Lot couldn't even have their flocks in the same place. It wasn't a very productive land. But by the time we get here, 
at the conquest, it's a land that flows with milk and honey. Okay? Jonathan found a flow of honey on the ground. You just go out in the ground and there's honey coming up out of the ground. Pretty good stuff. Make donuts out of that pretty good. All right. But you see, if we read, now if we understand this, we understand this imagery, and it is biblical imagery, then when you look at the book of Judges, what do you see? Well, the Ammonites come into the land. And then the Philistines come into the land. And then the stalagmites come into the land. Everyone, they're constantly trying to cover over the land again. And sometimes it says they were like an ocean for multitude out there. Then we get into the book of Samuel and Kings. We find the same thing, that the Syrians are trying to sweep through and conquer the land. And the Assyrians, and then finally the Babylonians. The sea wants to sweep over and reclaim the land. So the Assyrians here are a sea power. Actually, they're located on the Tigris and Euphrates River, and they're not particularly a sea power. But in terms of imagery, that's what they are. And we saw last week that the Syrians were constantly trying to conquer the land. And God seems at one point to have used the Assyrians to draw the Syrians away from Israel and grant relief. And that was in Jonah's day. In the days of Jeroboam II, God granted some relief uh, to northern Israel. And Jonah was the prophet at that time in the days of Jeroboam II, as we saw last time. Now Jonah is sent to the city of Nineveh to cry against it because its wickedness has come up before God. And Jonah knows what that means. If, if these people repent, they'll become strong. This turbulent sea will become strong. It might strengthen them. The men, instead of gambling all day long, will start to work. They won't make the women do all the work anymore. The women will get to stay home and take care of the children. And they'll become industrious and there'll be a free market. And uh, the, the Obamification will be driven back. And, and, uh, uh, and all right, this guy's name Rand will... Uh, Take over, and there'll be uh, prosperity and strength, and the nation will become strong. And Jonah doesn't want to strengthen the sea. Now, in the Bible, the sea is turbulent, but you know, when we get up into the book of Revelation, from God's perspective, the sea is like glass. From the perspective of the throne, these oceans are like glass. They are totally under his control. So what looks like a turbulent, raging sea to us of Gentiles is a sea of glass. And that's a perspective that we need to bear in mind as well. Well, in this chapter, there's also a storm. If we read further into verse 4, Jonah goes out in this ship, and right away, Yahweh hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to be broken. All right? This is God's storm. And this storm is always going on, too. It's God's great storm of history. And it's around his glory cloud. God appears in a cloud in the Bible. And it's a dark cloud. Now, when you see into this cloud, you see shiny stuff in there. So that during the daytime, it's a pillar of cloud. But in the nighttime, you see fire inside of it and it becomes a pillar of fire. And when this storm cloud appears to Ezekiel as it gets closer and closer, he sees fire and lightning bolts. And then he sees this shiny metal 
altar inside of it with fire inside of it and cherubim and all this other stuff. But that's not the visible appearance of it is of a storm cloud that is coming because God's presence is awesome. And at the Mount Sinai, the cloud appears on the mountain and is tremendous thunder so loud that people's ears shatter. You know that Luther was knocked off his horse by a thunderstorm. And the great 19th century theologian, Benjamin Warfield, his wife was out and thunderstruck one time and it shattered her nerves so bad that she could never go out of her house again. And he stayed with her. And whenever he was asked to go somewhere and deliver a lecture, he would write the lecture and mail it uh, because she couldn't go out. Thunder can destroy you. You have an electrical nervous system in you. And a lightning discharge near to you or that amount of, of, of sound can shatter you. And that's what the Bible means when it says that they heard a sound at Mount Sinai that was so loud that people begged that Moses would go up and listen to the sound instead. Because and even Moses says, I am filled with fear and trembling, as it says in the book of Hebrews. So this storm is a fearful thing. And when God comes near in his storm, it's fearful. Now, the pagans know this. Okay, what's the name of the storm god among the Canaanites? Better bring some sacrifices to him or he'll bring a big storm and destroy all your crops. His name is Baal. Okay. Who's the storm god among the Greeks? He's the biggest, toughest god of all. Zeus, right? And in Rome... Jupiter, these are all the same God. And in Germany, Thor, yeah. Okay, whoever's got the lightning bolts, watch out, all right? And these are all copies, you know, inferior copies of the true God. His storm, it's there. It's fearful. But God's storm is his glory cloud that he rides as a chariot. In the sky. And it says here, Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. And what does he encounter? He encounters the presence of the Lord. There ain't no place you can flee from the presence of the Lord. He's thinking of the presence of the Lord in connection with the people of God, God's manifestation among his people. Maybe even, uh, maybe Jonah occasionally got to go down to Jerusalem and visit the temple where God's presence, his name was. But here... He encounters that same Shekinah presence in the storm. And the storm is real. But grace is given to Gentiles on the sea. God takes care of them. We just sang about that. Let me read it again. Uh, Psalm 107. Might as well hear it in text form. Psalm 107. Now, although we won't get to this today in Jonah... Something to remember. Verse 23 of Psalm 107. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man, and they were at the end of their knowledge, and all their wisdom was swallowed up. I just, you just got to think about this. You're on this little boat, 
and the waves are here, and you're going down and up. And it's way, when you're down here, these waves are like mountains on either side of you. And then you're drawn up, and you're vomiting all over the place because of how sick you are. Even if you're a trained sailor, I mean, it's just so much. And the ship's about to break up. It's pretty bad. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonderful works to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. So in this psalm, which has got different groups of people in it, the fourth group of these Gentiles who were brought uh, to God's safe haven. The ship is supposed to be a place of protection. The ark protected the entire world when Noah was on it. The ark, anybody remember what the ark looked like on the inside? It had three decks. Okay. Theologians always know that these decks reproduce the waters below, the earth, and, and the waters above. Heaven, earth, and under the earth. The three symbolic, three stages of the universe. And they're birds and animals and, who knows, maybe freshwater fish <laughs> kept on this ark. And uh, the entire world is there and is preserved on the ship. And the church is the ark. And so in this church, this room in here, at least when we're here, is called a nave. Okay? Out there, that vestibule is called a narthex. And this is called a nave from the word navel, ship. And if you look at big cathedrals, if you look up, they look like the inside of a ship with that vaulted uh, gothic ceilings. Okay? But it's supposed to look like a ship, like ribbed vaulting. Now, supposed to, rib vaulting is also supposed to be like bone so that you're inside the body of Christ. But uh, a church is the ship uh, that carries you through the world. It's God's ship. And in the book of Jonah, the Gentile empires are being revealed as a ship that will carry Israel and Judah through the captivity. They'll be protected inside this ship and afterwards as well. People say the Jews never came back from exile. Well, they did come back from exile in the sense that they went on to something even better, and that was to be spread out as a nation of prophets inside the empire. Persian Empire, Greek Empire, and then Roman Empire. And these were great ships that protected the people and gave and made them secure as they traveled around in the Gentile world. God said that he would take care of them. Now, this history comes to an end in Acts chapter 27, as we'll see in just a moment. So now we're in a position to kind of start this story, and uh, we'll see how far we get before the bell rings. Here again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and this is the days of Jeroboam II, he's a prophet to northern Israel, and he says, leave northern Israel, leave your congregation, leave the people you've been praying for and care about, and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. 
Let's remind ourselves of what Nineveh is. To do that, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. All right? Genesis 10. That is the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis, which is Genesis 10. And starting in verse 8. Well, starting in verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, which is Libya, or, well, is Ethiopia, uh, is usually called, and Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, Ayim, means two. You know that M in Hebrew, I'm sure you know this, M in Hebrew is plural. So, seraph is singular, and seraphim is plural. Cherub is singular, cherubim is plural. But ayim is dual. In English, we don't really have much left of a singular, plural, and dual form. But ancient languages have dual forms, and we still have a little bit of it left. Uh, Mizraim means the two misers. Anybody know what that is? What nation in the ancient world had two halves? Egypt, yes, upper and lower Egypt. So Mizraim, Mizr, is Egypt. Mizraim, the two Egypts, upper and lower Egypt. Upper Egypt is where? South or north? South. <laughs> down in Africa where the mountains are, and lower Egypt is north up where the delta is. And then there's Put, which is Libya, and Canaan. These are the sons of Ham. And the sons of Cush, verse 7, were Sheba and Havilah and Sapta and Raama and Sapteca. And the sons of Raama were Sheba and Dedan. All these names show up later on, like the Queen of Sheba and all this. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Very difficult passage to explain what that means. What is a mighty hunter before the Lord? Was he capturing human beings right in front of the Lord? What does this imply? Doesn't matter to us today. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. All right? Tower of Babel. We heard about that today. Nimrod was one of the two groups of people involved in that. The other group were Joktanite Hebrews. Hebrews and, uh, and uh, Nimrod's Hamites were the two groups of people involved in Babel. And Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the city of, in the land of Shinar. Okay? Four cities. Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went forth. Well, yeah, everybody scattered away from Babel. Into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kala and resin between Nineveh and Kala, which is a great city. Now, what does this tell you? Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Rehoboth-ir, Kala and resin between Nineveh and Kala 
which is a great city. This is one city with four suburbs or four burbs. Okay, they're four burbs. The, the first thing he did was four separate cities. The second thing he did was one giant city in four sections so that it was like continuous city. When Brenda and I were in Japan, we were in Tokyo and they decided to take us out to Yokohama. So I thought we'd leave Tokyo and drive through the countryside and get to Yokohama. No, this is continuous skyscrapers all along the way. It never stopped. I'm not talking about strip malls here. I'm not talking about, you know, suburbs with filling stations like you might have in America where you're kind of in there. You never kind of leave behind like between here and Fort Walton Beach. There's really not much of any stretch of empty space left out there anymore. This stuff built all along. No, this was skyscrapers all along. When do we leave Tokyo and get to Yokohama? Well, we just passed this sign here. It's one continuous giant city. Okay, that's what this is. That's what the great city is. Nineveh is the is the name of the overall place. But Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin are parts of it. It's like the New Jerusalem, which is all the cities of the world in one place. Unlike the old world where there are many different cities. So there's kind of a, a counterfeit of the history of the world here. Now that's what Nineveh is. Nineveh is this composite giant city, which is the capital of Assyria. It's, that's why it's the great city, the great city, all the way back from Genesis chapter 10. And God is saying, we'll start conquering these Gentiles now. We'll start going out against these Hamites. Okay, Nineveh. Well, Jonah arose and flew, he fled to Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? Possibly in Spain. That's the older view. Some people say it might be Carthage. It doesn't make any difference. If we have a map here, here's Israel, here's the Mediterranean Sea, and over here is the Tigris and Euphrates River, over here is Syria, Babylon. Here's Joppa in Israel, way over here at Tarshish, whether it's here at Carthage or whether it's all the way over here in Spain. He's heading in the opposite direction. That's the point here. And why does he not want to go? This is always the question with Jonah. Some say, well, Jonah was just a nationalistic prophet. You know, everything in northern Israel was fine. He wanted northern Israel to be the strongest nation in the world. He was like these Americanists in our country, you know, America, America, America. Some of our conservative friends are way too much that way. It's kind of like sacred America. Uh, well, no. Uh, if, if we're going to be true Americans, we have to prophesy against the sins in America as well. And we know that Jonah was a true prophet and he prophesied against the sins in northern Israel. So he was not some kind of nationalistic prophet. That's not the issue. The issue is this. The issue is that in Deuteronomy chapter 32, this isn't some brand new insight with me. I mean, I got this from reading Patrick Fairbairn and uh, long ago, uh, Hugh Martin, other classic reformed expositors of the book of Jonah. 
uh, particularly in Scotland, excellent theologians in Scotland uh, in the 19th century pointed this out. Deuteronomy 32, and we're going to start reading in verse 15, or I will, because this is the prophecy that governs this, and this is what Jonah has in mind, and it's what Paul has in mind, because Paul is the greater Jonah. Verse 15, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. That's Israel. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. The rock, the foundation on which he stood. And they made him jealous with strange gods. That's adultery language. Okay, Idolatry is adultery. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, whom they have not known. New ones who came up recently, whom your fathers did not dread. Brand new made up gods. You neglected the rock who begot you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And Yahweh saw this. And spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them and I will see what their end will be. Well, they are, in other words, I will determine their end. Well, they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That's the prophecy that if Israel apostatizes, God will turn to the Gentiles. And that's all over the book of Acts, isn't it? That's Paul's message. That's Romans chapter 10 and 11. God is, for, God is going to make Israel jealous by going to the Gentiles. For fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol. And consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. All right. That's what Jonah knows. And Jonah, knowing the sins of Israel, figures, if God is sending me to the Assyrians, the clock must be about to run out on Israel. And he doesn't want that to happen. Okay. He's reluctant. Now, what Jonah learns from this is that God's plan is more profound than he thinks. Because it turns out that converting these Gentiles is a way of providing salvation for Israel. That after the Gentiles are converted, Israel will be converted later on. The Gentiles will protect and shade Israel, as we saw when we surveyed the book. Now, he might have remembered the story of Joseph. Joseph went to the Gentiles. Joseph converts the Gentiles. The Pharaoh says, where can we find a man like this who has the spirit of the living God? I'm going to put him in charge of everything. And the Egyptians convert. And then we see as we read the end of the book of Genesis, every time something good happens to Jacob or Joseph, the Egyptians are rejoicing. And when Jacob comes to visit the Pharaoh, he tells the Pharaoh all about his life. The Pharaoh says, what's it been like being a servant of Yahweh? Man, tell me about that. And as Jacob says, as few and evil have been the days of the years of my sojourning, and they haven't reached the days of the years 
for the sojournings of my forefathers. Just let me tell you how bad it's been for me, Pharaoh. You know, my brother fought with me in the womb. My dad tried to disinherit me. I went over to Laban to try to get wives, and he cheated me. I got back in the land, and my sons massacred this town full of people and made my name stink and everybody. And then they sold off my son into slavery, and I thought they'd killed him. That's what, that's what it's like to serve the Lord. So, Pharaoh, maybe you want to go back to Aton Ray and serve him. No, Pharaoh says, bless me. So you got to see the Pharaoh on his knees. And Jacob bless him. I mean, this is conversion. I mean, you hear a story like that and you still want to serve the Lord? Okay. Pharaoh says, bless me. So they're converted. And then the brothers come and they're converted. And Jesus gives us the same principle. This is where we're going to stop today. But we need to understand what's in Jonah's mind and what Jonah doesn't quite see enough of. Um, and we do have time to do this. We're almost over. In Luke chapter 4, Luke being a Gentile-oriented gospel, so Luke starts us off right away with this same kind of challenge. Luke's written, Luke and Acts are written. Uh, uh, Luke is Paul's buddy. And so he's got the same perspective that going to the Gentiles will provoke the Jews to wrath. And in, in Greek, the word jealousy, jealousy and wrath are the same word. Orge, which is where we get the word orgy from. But it doesn't mean that in the ancient world. Okay? So you can be provoked to jealousy and say, I want that. You know, tell me how to get it. Or you can be provoked to wrath and say, I'm going to kill you because you have that. All right? Either way, Paul was provoked to orgate jealousy when he saw Stephen say, I saw heaven opened and I see the Shekinah glory. Paul, that's when Paul lost it, man. He said, oh, wait a minute. Okay, I'm going to start killing these people. And uh, so in Luke chapter four, Jesus comes to Nazareth. He enters the synagogue. He's given the book of Isaiah, and on that particular Saturday, since they had electionary system, uh, he reads that uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim release to the captives and sight to the blind in the favorable year of the Lord. That's what the day of Pentecost is about after all today. And Jesus closed the book and sat down to preach. Whoa, what's that about? And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. And they said, is this not the son of Joseph? Aha. What do you think that means? If this says, is this not Joseph's son? They were saying, oh, well, you know, remember Joseph, you know, carpenter around here. We're not really quite set up for that. They were wondering at the gracious words falling from his lips. They are seeing him as a prophet. And the son of Joseph is a messianic title. There's a double meaning here. But you don't want to miss the fact that they're saying, this may be the new Joseph. And so Jesus said, yeah, I am. And he said to them, no doubt shall quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. The things we heard were done at Capernaum, do here in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet's welcome in his hometown. If I'm the son of Joseph, remember what you did to him. 
I say to you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now he's saying, yeah, if this is the acceptable year of the Lord, if this is the year of Jubilee, if this is the year when all the land reverts to its original owner, which is God himself, and the world is turned upside down, if I'm the son of Joseph, then maybe you would expect me to go to the Gentiles, because that's what the prophets did. Maybe you Jews should listen to this, because maybe you should learn something from it. And it says, all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him up to the brow of a hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down from the cliff, passing through their midst, he went his way. What did they do to Joseph? What did they do? They threw him down in a pit. Okay. They're going to do the same thing to Jesus. So this is, this is the same theme. When you announce to Israel, hey, I'm, I'm going to the Gentiles because of your sin, it makes you furious. Now, that's in Romans chapter 10. A couple more. You'll see we're down at the end of the page here, so fear not. Romans chapter 10, Paul says this, and it's at the heart of the book of Romans. Romans is all about this to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jew-Gentile relationship is all over the book of Romans. And he says in Romans 10:19, I say, surely Israel did not acknowledge, did they, that the first Moses, way back at the beginning, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I infuriate you. Okay? So then he says in chapter 11 about the, about the olive tree and the branches being broken out and Gentiles being broken in. But this is going to provoke Israel to rage and the Israelites will become jealous and they'll want to get back in and then they'll come back into the tree. And he says, my own experience is, you know, what happened to me is going to happen to Israel. I was provoked to rage. I was persecuted in the church. And then God converted me. He says, now Israel, right now, the Jews, they're provoked to rage. They're persecuting the Gentile church. But God is going to turn them, okay, just like he did me. Now, we saw a few weeks ago that Peter, Simon, Bar, Jonah, remember? Simon, son of the dove. Simon, son of Jonah. He's a new Jonah. He goes to Joppa. He goes to the Gentiles. He doesn't really want to go there until God persuades him to, and then he does. And then when we get to Paul, Paul is all over being another Jonah. Paul is going out on the sea. Paul is traveling on ships. And I'm not going to take the time to do it now. Maybe we'll come back to it. Or if you want, read Acts chapter 27 this afternoon. And you'll see Paul on a ship, and the ship is about to be wrecked in a storm. But Paul is not asleep at all. Paul takes charge. He tells them what they need to do. And the ship is wrecked because the ship that starts in the book of Jonah carries all the way down and now ends at the end of the book of Acts. The end of the Gentile ship and the full coming of the church. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. 
You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.